Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Nathan Bell, professor at the University of Melbourne. His new book, Refugees, Towards a Politics of Responsibility, is available as a book and ebook from Roman and Littlefield. Links to his work can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Tripart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You may also find this episode at YouTube at Tripart Film's YouTube channel. Just search for Tripart Film or Rendering Unconscious Podcast at YouTube. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and sign up for my newsletter on the contact page to stay abreast of all upcoming events. You can also visit the Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org. And follow me at Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Thank you so much for listening to Rendering Unconscious podcast and for your support. You can support the podcast at our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Your support is so appreciated. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon patrons. Well, firstly, thank you, Vanessa, for having me on your podcast. Very glad to to be here. in terms of where to start, um, I suppose I should start with my journey as to how I, I got to write this book, um, Refugees um, Towards the Politics of Responsibility. Um, it grew out of my uh, beautiful, <laughs> nice hardcover copy there. It grew out of my uh, PhD um, that I began many years ago, 2010, actually. I did it um, part time because I was working at the same time. And uh, I did that on the ethics of hospitality uh, with a big focus, especially on Jacques Derrida. He talks a lot about uh, the concept of hospitality and what he calls unconditional hospitality. Um, and I thought that was a, a, a very interesting um, way into the uh, question of asylum, um, to think about it through the, the lens of hospitality. And there was a, a particular phrase that he uses in his work that was the, the precise sort of exigency for my research, where he says that ethics is hospitality. Um, and as a young undergraduate, uh, younger than I am now, um, I was very struck by that phrase um, saying, you know, what is this claim? Ethics is hospitality, that we can, that ethics is, is nothing but hospitality or is reducible to hospitality. What does this mean? I thought, wow, this is amazing. Ethics is hospitality. And uh, I, I wanted to explore uh, that claim. Um, now a little older and wiser, I'm less impressed by that phrase. I, I actually find it a little trite. He's simply referring to the, the etymology of of the word ethics, which refers back to ethos in terms of one's mode of dwelling. So 
So that's really all he's doing when he says that ethics is hospitality. He's referring it back to that its etymological root. But even so, it was an interesting uh, provocation to me that sort of launched me on a path of of uh, exploring um, the problems uh, and the limits around the politics of asylum. Why do states behave the way they do? What's what is the structure of the logic in terms of the arguments that are marshaled? Um, especially around um, the right to exclude people um, because we could sort of take it as given that, you know, I accept the, the rubric of the arguments that are made that uh, our state borders are largely racist borders. Like as a friend of mine who works uh, in uh, refugee rescue on the Mediterranean puts it that the distribution of life and death is often decided on the basis of the color line, you know, black and brown bodies are held to, to not count as much. So there is that sort of structural racism um, to uh, borders and the policing of borders that goes on all around the world. Um, so I addressed that in part in my book, but I also wanted to take it a little bit broader than that and come up with a more generalized concept of the political. Uh, and I wanted to place the right to asylum at the heart of politics rather than at the periphery. One of the things that came to mind um, while you were talking is this idea on hospitality is how then it's become actually in places criminal to be to be hospitable and like what how messed up that is basically. <laughs> Absolutely. Derrida actually has this this rant in one of his texts where he talks about um, France actually made it a law, uh, you know, this what they called a crime of hospitality. And there have been people prosecuted that you probably heard of, like um, Frederick Ayerhu and uh, and people like Carola Rackett and uh, Scott Warren in the United States who've been prosecuted precisely because they're trying to save people's lives uh, and, and trying to help people in their quest to to seek asylum. There's this terrible this terrible um, paradox and this insane idea of of, of calling hospitality itself uh, criminal. So my effort was to sort of move, as I say, move asylum to the center of the political as a concept rather than at the periphery. There's a line in the book where I quote um, uh, uh, a, a political theorist, a philosopher called Joseph Karens, who's very famous for, for writing a paper uh, calling for open borders, the case for open borders. But he wrote a book in 2013 called The Ethics of Immigration that has a chapter on refugees. And in that chapter, he, I, I feel he sort of gives the game away in terms of how political theorists tend to think about the right to asylum and refugees when he refers to asylum as a secondary derivative duty. So what does that mean? So a, a basic account of politics um, of political societies would be that you have a group of individuals in, let's say, a kind of Hobbesian state of nature who form a social contract uh, to create Leviathan, to create the sovereign, to create the state. Uh, in which they live and can uh, live together, work together and prosper and so on. And then you are faced with the question of the other, of the outsider. And then the question is, what is to be done? Like as David Owen's recent book title puts it, what do we owe to refugees? What do we owe to other people, to outsiders and so on? And I really wanted to turn that inside out or turn it on its head um, and say that actually asylum is central to the task of politics from the very beginning. And it's not a secondary derivative duty, uh, but rather it's at the heart of politics. So how can we make that claim? So just to unpack that for a moment. First, if we start with a human subject, I, I think a basic account of 
the human subject that's dominant in political theory, political philosophy would be a sort of standard liberal subject where you have the sort of individual monadic subject, um, you know, sort of springs up in the world by themselves. Judith Butler has this great thing where she talks about Robinson Crusoe as the sort of figure of the liberal subject who, who sort of sprang like uh, Athena from Zeus's head um, <laughs> without, without ever having had uh, any any real context, any social context. He's just all of a sudden on the island by himself and, and um, you know, pursuing his life. And he comes into relation with others, but he's, he's sort of this autonomous figure standing on his own. And that that's a, a sort of basic, that liberal subject is a sort of way we tend to think about political subjectivity. Um, and that we, we then can form into groups and so on after that. And of course, communitarians would have another version of that. But that that's basically... Um, how political subjectivity is understood. And that's where I use the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas to challenge this, to say that the human subject is always already a relational subject. So the, for Levinas, the selfhood of each of us is in part constituted by our relations with others. In other words, I don't come into the world, uh, you know, simply fo fully formed as Nathan and then encounter Vanessa. There's a certain sense in which my encounter with you is always already constitutive of myself, like my, my very, not just my experience in the world, but my actual subjectivity. So selfhood itself uh, has the, the, the encounter with the other built into it, as it were. So that's the sort of modality of subjectivity, but it's also a responsible subjectivity in that for Levinas, we are called by what he calls the face of the other to be responsible for other people. So instead of the autonomous liberal subject making simply rational decisions about what responsibilities are for outsiders, in Levinas, you get an account of the subject where you are always already called to responsibility for other people, that to be a human being in the world is to be responsible or to be called to responsibility, because one can still deny it, but to be called to responsibility for other people. Uh, does that make sense? Absolutely. Right. So, so then I marry that up to uh, Hannah Arendt's notion of plurality. So, so Hannah Arendt has this notion of plurality that she talks about in the human condition. Um, there's different ways of understanding what she means by this. And I, I have my own particular interpretation. But plurality uh, uh, essentially means that we, we share the world with other people in terms of not just our plurality of individuals, which is partly what she means, because she talks about it in terms of equality and distinction between different people. But she, well, I think it can also be understood to mean a plurality of peoples. And this is a, a way in which Judith Butler, uh, again, interprets this notion of plurality. Uh, my, my book, by the way, is very much influenced by a book by Judith Butler called Parting Ways, where she talks about the Israel-Palestine conflict in terms of these two people who two peoples who did not choose each other who are having to live with each other and that need to find a cohabitation so in other words in plurality there are always uh, groups of people in the world that one did not choose just as in in for Levinas in one subjectivity there are other people that one did not choose so we are always already in the world with other people and other groups that we did not choose and so there's a very interesting phrase in the beginning of Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, where she talks about the need 
for human dignity to find a new guarantee that can only be found in a new law on earth, which is a fascinating phrase um, that I interpretively link in my book to a phrase that's in her last book, The Life of the Mind, um, the last book she was writing that's incomplete that she was writing when she died, where she says that plurality is the law of the earth. Now, for rent, I don't know that that's an explicitly moral claim. I don't think she necessarily saw it that way. There's some scholarly disagreement about how to interpret Arendt on this. But for me, Arendt is answering her own call in Origins of Totalitarianism that we need a new law on earth and human dignity needs a new guarantee. Um, and the law will, will supply this guarantee that plurality itself is the law of the earth. In other words, fundamental to politics itself is the safeguarding of human plurality, that all groups have a right to exist on the earth and we have a responsibility and an obligation to safeguard those lives. So whether they be people um, you know, transiting through Mexico to reach the border of the United States or whether they are people crossing the Mediterranean to Europe or whether they are people coming on um, boats to try and access Australia, just to pick on, on Western states because that's who I mostly pick on and have in my sights in this book, um, that fundamental to politics is this primary duty we have to other people to make all lives livable, as Judith Butler would say, um, and, and for lives not to be precarious. So this flies in the face of a, of a typical account of the political where we, we attend to our own interests, the idea that we simply have primary obligations to our fellow citizens and then we worry secondarily about uh, other people, that this is a, a false vision of politics, that it, it eludes, it, it attempts to, to escape or elude the uh, fact that we are, are in an original relation with other people. We are always sharing the earth with other people and that we have a moral obligation um, to safeguard all lives. So at the end of Eichmann in Jerusalem, Arendt, one of Arendt's charges against Eichmann is that he arrogated to himself the right with whom to inhabit the earth. And that that was his crime. His crime was against human plurality as such, that he felt he could say that uh, certain people, groups of people such as the Jewish people did not have the right to share the earth with him. And that's why Arendt said, we should not be expected to share the earth with you. And that's why you must hang um, because he had committed this fundamental crime against the givenness of plurality as such. And that's the same crime that's being committed by states today in refusing to uh, admit people uh, and, and to safeguard lives. Yeah, and to talk about the US, um, since that's what I'm most familiar with because that's where I'm from originally, um, the border of the US, and Mexico and you know when I realized like a lot of the people coming through um during the Trump administration and always um you know don't they they were having trouble finding translators because people didn't even speak Spanish they spoke native languages indigenous languages and to the realization that many of these people are actually indigenous persons and that this sort of persecution against indigenous people of the Americas is still going on like in these ways to this day is just horrifying. Absolutely. And it's a real problem as I understand it, the US board in terms of resourcing, providing sufficient translators and providing sufficient judges 
in terms of processing dockets, in terms of people's claims for asylum. Yeah, so that, that, that goes to my point really in terms of um, states having to see this as a primary obligation rather than a secondary obligation, that, it, that it's not just a, a sort of a, a burden imposed from without, but one is always living in the world already with other people the one did not choose. I mean, Martin Luther King has this great phrase in the letter from Birmingham jail about our inescapable network of mutuality that we depend upon each other in the world. And, and you know, there are various um, things in the world such a, as climate change, terrorism, uh, other types of, of, of issues, human trafficking and other things one can name that just show that, you know, the, the problems we face um, as a global community cannot be reduced to the, the, absurd, the absurd historical uh, and racist constructions of the nation state, that um, we need a new account, a new concept of the political to address this. Yeah, and of the and of our global responsibility. Because as you point out as well, that you know that it's going to be more and more that there are people having to migrate because of the climate change and the climate crisis, uh, in addition to, of course, all the wars. Right, we're even seeing examples now in highly developed societies, you know, when we talk about the developed and the developing world, if I can put it that way, or the global north, the global south, you know, obviously the floods that have just happened in Germany, um, but also a year and a bit uh, or so ago in Australia in terms of the, the bushfires, and we actually had our first climate refugees in terms of people being stranded on a beach because the, the firewall ha had reached the, the sort of limits of where they were, that they actually had to be rescued by the Navy. So when, when I refer to King's notion of our inescapable network of mutuality, there is hopefully a growing recognition that we're all in it together, that we can no longer sort of, you know, the idea of, you know, Trump and his wall and that we can all sort of just raise our borders and fences and that's going to protect us. It's just nonsense. Yeah, it's not going to work. And you talk about at the end of your book, um, the children and the children being separated. And, and I love this pilgrimage that you took uh, to this place in France where the children had been taken away by train and executed. Um, you know, would you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, so the coda at the end of the book is, it's really a misnomer because a coda in a piece is meant to be a relatively uh, short, uh, you know, addendum to a piece, to a, to a written work or a musical work and so on. But it's actually the longest section of the book. I got to be carried away with, with this account of... Um, of things yeah so I, I as you say i undertook a kind of pilgrimage to this uh tiny little hamlet in france called Isieux, which uh was a a, a a site of a particular set of events concerning the shoah the holocaust um where this fellow klaus barbie who who was a gestapo officer had rounded up 44 children who all got deported to and perished in auschwitz um I was sort of moved to do this. I lived in, in Paris for a year and a half on scholarship while I was writing my thesis. And, and so I was getting very interested in French politics and history and so on. But I, I watched a documentary called Hotel Terminus, which goes through the history of Klaus Barbie and his, his record in France and what he did. He's famous for having tortured Jean Moulin, the, the head of the French resistance. He tortured him to death. Um, but he also is, is, is famous and infamous for this roundup of these children. And, and it's sort of striking because, the, as I say, the little hamlet of his is this tiny little place. It, it's quite an effort to get there. 
um, you know, you've got to take a, a train from Paris to Lyon, then another train from Lyon to another small village, and then from there a taxi for a long time into the countryside, um, which sort of to me testified to the absolutism of the, the sort of murderous drive of the Nazis to, to hunt down every Jewish person that they could. And, and even, you know, this group of children, it's just the most horrendously cruel act. And I found that documentary very moving. Um, so yeah, I wanted, I wanted to go there and pay my respects, but, but as you may recall from, from reading the chapter, I was struck by how beautiful a place it is. Um, it's just an absolutely gorgeous place. Like as you is um, sort of gathered around this crystal blue lake and you have the Alps in the background and this like glorious uh, countryside. And, and it, it was just a reminder of, of the horror that lurks beneath the everyday. So that led me into a, a sort of discussion of, of, it took me back to Derrida and thinking about what he calls uh, hauntology. Um, so I tried developing that chapter of politics of hauntology to try to make us uh, remind the reader of what the stakes are of all this in terms of my book's argument, that, that, that we are sort of surrounded by, by ghosts, that we're surrounded by the dead, whether we know it or not, um, even in places um, as lovely as Izu is. Um, and this is true, you know, virtually everywhere. Like there's another line I quote from Hans Blumenberg who talks about both progress and sinkings leave behind the same uh, calm surface uh, or clear surface. So, so like the Mediterranean, for example, you know, a boat can sink without trace and, and everything appears calm and placid, but there's a horror that lurks beneath this. And this is, uh, we have to understand that this is true of all politics today, that state decisions to exclude people or not to actively help, uh, not to engage in what I call an ethos of responsibility are actually putting people to death. Um, not only are borders violent constructions, Reese Jones has a really good book called Violent Borders, uh, Refugees and the Right to Move, where he points out that actually, you know, tens of thousands of people die at a border each year. But also the, the, the failure to uh, accept people or the decision to deport people can actually lead to death. And, you know, you were just talking about the US border. There, there's a book called Deported to Death, which talks about um, the, the people who get deported from the United States to the border towns in Mexico, which are some of the most dangerous places on earth. So deportation is tantamount to death at times or the failure to provide adequate, um, you know, measures in terms of state-funded sea rescue operations on the Mediterranean, for example. So that, you know, we have a false concept and a false image of politics if we only attend to the visible and the apparent and what's you know, sort of readily obvious to us. We need to be just as attendant to ghosts. And so that, that was my, my gesture um, in terms of going to, to pay tribute to these children who are, are disappeared from the earth, which, which is, you know, not to privilege them uh, in any way above children or adults, People who are suffering today, whether it's you know any number of groups from the Palestinians to the, the Rohingya, um, uh, you know, people from Sri Lanka. I mean, I shouldn't start naming refugee cohorts because there's just so many. Um, but yeah, I, I try to show in the book how the events of the past, in terms of, as you were saying before, the, the Shah and the Second World War, that nothing has really changed. That the behavior of states then is the same as behavior of states now. And that this is just a moral disgrace, uh, and so something we need a radically new radically radical new concept of the political to address this. Um, I don't know if you know that there was a film called Transit 
that came out a couple of years ago, directed by Christian Petzold. Transits a novel by a, a German novelist called Anna Sagers um, that's set in Marseille in about 1941, where a lot of exiles from Germany are gathered who are trying to get on uh, boats and get out of Europe, basically, and get to the United States. And it makes this really interesting gesture in the film in that he retains the uh, original story, the 1941 story, but he sets it in contemporary Marseille. So you actually like the surroundings that you see are relatively modern, but there's this sort of World War II story being unfolded in the present day, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of mutual implication, a, a sort of uh, combining of, of past and present in that film, which is a really fascinating gesture, I think, in terms of showing like this, this issue that, that things have not changed in terms of the politics of asylum. And there's a similar kind of gesture I try to make in this book. Right, that was the whole point of it becoming international law, that people have the right to seek asylum was so that people weren't turned away and sent back to their deaths again. Um, and so how do, how do you imagine we could enforce this? Like we were talking also before we were recording about like the EU and having this be like a value that everyone in the EU supposedly has, but then having it not actually happening in practice. I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. That's the hardest part of this is just, you know, it simply requires that ongoing struggle. I mean, and there are lots of activists you know, doing much more than me, like in practical terms, in terms of, of, of trying to, to fight against this sort of racist system. And, and, you know, with my Marxist hat on, there's also a significant, you know, element of capitalism that's involved here in terms of uh, the exploitation of the global South by the global North. Um, you know, you think about the work of someone like Achille Mbembe uh, and his work on necropolitics and the critique of black reason, um, in terms of accounting for, I think that kind of thinking is vital in accounting for how states behave and why they behave the way they do and why people have the mindset that they do. And then in terms of, you know, changing people's minds, changing people's hearts, um, you know, that, that's it's a very difficult question. But I, like at my, at my highest aspiration, my goal would be to get people to, think about politics in a completely different way as I was trying to elaborate before in terms of this relational sort of sense of of um, human identity and experience and the ethical responsibility that's built into that that's not simply sort of arbitrary or or supervenes afterwards but is always already inscribed within human relations and if we can start to get people to think about politics that way rather than in more sort of you know uh liberal individualistic way hopefully we can start to engender a kind of more global politics of of responsibility and solidarity um so what are you working on now um so i'm still writing uh some different papers on uh refugees and asylum seekers so I'm uh, working a little bit on the sort of refugee migrant distinction at the moment. I think one of the uh, cutting edge questions in uh, refugee studies is to what extent should we distinguish between migrants and refugees? So I'm trying to write a paper about that um, because I think that the reasons that people uh, move around the world are quite uh, complex um, and cannot necessarily be mapped onto this binary. 
and there's a lot of really interesting work being done on this. I just read a great book called Crossing um, by Professor Rebecca Hamlin, um, who sort of deconstructs this, this binary of the migrant and the refugee. Um, so I think that's a really sort of interesting area of research. So that's, that's one thing I, I'm working on. Um, another thing I'm working on is I'm attempting to write a book for a kind of uh, ethical vision for the left. Um, one thing I'm concerned about is, you know, socialism and, and communism are very much sort of back on the agenda in a big way um, these days. Not that they ever left, but I think a lot of young people um, uh, uh, aspire to see a sort of democratic socialist uh, horizon, you know, that the enthusiasm around figures like Bernie Sanders and AOC and even, you know, further left than that, that, um, you know, young people are enthusiastic about, about, you know, socialism and communism. However, uh, I'm very disturbed by uh, some discussion on the left, especially the sort of further left about, they don't seem to have learned the lessons of 20th century communism in terms of the recourse to violence, the sort of the the aporia of the problem of how do you deal with revolution and counter-revolution in other words every time you try to engender a revolution I mean if it's important enough it will always bring about a counter-revolution in opposition to it so what's to be done with that counter-revolution does that require violence and secret police and so on and how do you prevent that from becoming open-ended so uh, I'm looking to wrestle with the problem of how you can have an, an ethical revolution as it were um, from the perspective of, of Levinas, um, uh, thinking about what are the sort of limits uh, that should be placed around, you know, a, a socialist or a communist project in terms of bringing about a world that's based, that's driven by um, a sense of human need rather than profit, uh, but which also avoids the pitfalls of some of the excesses we have seen in, in actual existing communism in terms of police states, in terms of imprisonment, in terms of uh, repression and so on. So that, that it's a big set of questions and, and rather dangerous waters to wade in, in terms of, you know, Marxist theory and so on. But that's, uh, that's something I'm looking to tackle next. Yeah, that's actually something that's been on my mind this specific weekend because I'm originally from Miami and there's been this SOS Cuba um, hashtag going around and the Cuban people last week, you know, started uh, protesting the government there. And a lot of my friends who I really respect in academia, they've always held up Castro as this sort of figure of like someone who's like stands strong against like U.S. imperialism, which I could see and respect. And actually seeing them um, post pictures of him as a hero actually made me like have to like research it more and think about it more because my knee-jerk reaction was like Castro is a dictator. I'm from Miami. I grew up with all the Cuban people who left. And so I, I went through like this whole process over the past year of thinking about that and trying to like put in perspective and understand their perspective because I, I trust them and I respect them and their work. Um, but now that the Cuban people like are saying they want their freedom, I'm finding that a lot of my um, academic friends are still on the side of that like Castro's a hero and not listening to the people that say that they've been oppressed and I feel like with all the other kinds of arguments like with Palestine we're supposed to listen to the people so, so why in this case are we not supposed to listen to the people but are still like holding on to ideologies right absolutely it's quite complicated really isn't it because I mean I mean you would know more than me but the history of Cuba I mean in terms of the United States that you know the U.S. you know infamously used Cuba as a kind of brothel and a casino 
um, prior to the revolution. And I think there, there were great advancements made in terms of the revolution. There's statistics about, you know, literacy. Famously, Cuba has a great health system. Um, certainly punches above its weight in terms of what it what it achieves. Um, and it's also quite repressive, you know, Castro jailing political prisoners. There's, there's an Oliver Stone documentary that shows him uh, giving people 20 years in jail for simply trying to leave Cuba, trying to, to immigrate with an E. Um, and also, as I understand, things like LGBT rights were very bad under communism in Cuba and so on. So I think it requires a sort of nuanced conversation where one, one doesn't simply either support the enemies of, you know, socialism, communism in terms of just being the useful idiots for imperialism in terms of, you know, the United States and its motivations, but at the same time, not simply parroting um, the talking points of some uh, repressive uh, uh, dictators who wear the mantle of socialism or communism. The, the one that's really driving me nuts at the moment is what's happening in Xinjiang uh, in China and the, the elements of the left that um, are denying what's happening there in terms of what what very much looks like a cultural genocide um, because, you know, they see China, you know, it, it wears the colours of communism, but uh, it, it's in no way a communist state. I mean, it certainly brought, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and so on, but there, there's a sort of like, it's almost like just as simple as like people are like picking teams. It's a sort of the, the sort of anti-imperialism of fools where they're, they're saying like, we're, we're against American imperialism, therefore we're with anyone that's against that. So we're with the Chinese, you know, we're sort of throwing the Uyghurs under the bus. Uh, and they like to point to, you know, one or two right-wing uh, researchers who, who are studying this and criticizing China and saying, look, it's just this right-wing propaganda. When you don't need to do that, you just need to, you know, listen to the voices of, of Uyghurs in exile, for example, who can testify to what's going on, what happened to them, why they can't speak to their families and so on. So, so yeah, I, I, I very much of the view that we need a more nuanced discussion on the left and not just simply be sort of blind anti-imperialists. So that's one thing I'm sort of wrestling with at the moment. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, there's this Cuban artist who I really love who has an image that they just posted like yesterday that's basically like a person holding up a sign of Che, like, like a picture of Che, like, yeah. But then behind Che is like somebody beating, like being beaten. Um, by the mil military police, you know. Right. So, it, yeah. it is that, it is, as I was saying before, it's that sort of dialectics of revolution because to, to overthrow entrenched interests in terms of capitalism, uh, like I can't, like, I, like I'm not against violence, you know, for like just for its sake. Um, like that's not my position just for its sake. Like I, I can see a necessary sort of violence to overcome a worse violence. You know, Mark Twain has that great line about um, the terror during the French Revolution filled one cemetery, but there was another terror that lasted millennia that all of France could not contain the graves. In other words, this sort of unending exploitation and oppression of people. To overthrow that, you might need to break a few eggs, as the saying goes, but then, then how do you limit that violence? And how does it not become open-ended and not just the, the, how does the revolution not become simply the plaything of a sort of vanguardist few who then just hold on to their power? How do we have real democratic socialism? Yeah, because that's, that's what I think too, like watching a bunch of documentaries and thinking about Castro and, and that revolution. And like, I think it looks like he had a really good intentions and like really wanted the best for the people. 
in the beginning, but then in the end, you know, beloved leaders don't stay in power until they die and then hand over power to their brother. You know, that's what dictators do at the end of the day. Um, so how do you like have the revolution, but then like still make sure it stays of the people and that people don't like get too power hungry? It's really difficult. Right, exactly. And having a nuanced conversation in terms of, you know, if you look at, you know, what's going on in Haiti as well and around the region, you know, the United States always, you know, there's always imperial fingerprints on everything that's going on. Um, so, you know, to be, to be able to say both things at once in a way is really quite simple. To be able to say that, yes, the United States is a brutal imperial power and we should oppose um, what it's doing in so many ways, but also to point out the injustices that occur that come from other centres of power. Yeah, it's just, but it's, yeah, it seems to be beyond the grasp of a lot of people on the left. <laughs> it's similar in a way to the deba debate between Camus and Sartre, um, you know, back in the day where they were sort of arguing about the Soviet Union. And, and while Camus was not a stronger thinker, I think morally he was more on the right track in saying, look, we should be denouncing the gulags in the Soviet Union just as we denounce the injustices and the colonialism of the West. And, you know, Sartre was being a bit more, um, you know, he, he said outrageous things, like he said, writers in the Soviet Union are the freest writers in the world. Um, he was telling these lies because he, he said, we don't want to drive Billancourt to, to despair. We don't want to uh, discourage people who are for communism. But I think we need to have a more, more honest conversation about, about the left and what our aim should be and why. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because I, I really love the psychoanalyst Sabina Spielrein, who, you know, was a student of Jung and Freud, and the whole Dangerous Method movie was about her. Right. <laughs> really sensationalized film. Um, but anyway, I love her, and I love her writing, and she she um, went back, she's from Russia originally, and went back to Moscow in 1923, and... Um, her whole family, like she ended up being executed in World War II um, and her daughters, um, but like her brothers and her father, like they were doctors and professors and they were all executed as well in this like attempt to like, like get rid of the bourgeoisie, you know, like you're not supposed to have people in this like intellectual level and we don't want that. We want all of our thinkers. We want our academics, you know? Right. <laughs> Just on that, back to the ref refugee question, it's interesting you say that in the, the recent Adam Curtis documentary, the most recent one, it's called Can't Get You Out of My Head. I don't, did you get a chance to, to see that at all? Mm -mm. Okay, really great documentary. Um, there's a section in the beginning of one of those, uh, one of the episodes where he talks about the response on the left to refugees from Vietnam uh, in 1975 and after, where a lot of what you would call, I suppose, petite bourgeois uh, uh, people were fleeing Vietnam because they feared, you know, communist reprisal, and that was a kind. There was a kind of antipathy on the on from some elements of the left to those refugees, is not really seeing them as as worthy victims. You know, Noam Chomsky has this language of worthy and unworthy victims, where you know, uh, you know, again, like a U.S. an imperial power like the United States, they'll focus on some victims in the world when it suits their political purpose, but the ones where it doesn't suit their purpose or where they're complicit, as in, say, Indonesia, for example, um, in the 60s, where they backed the you know, slaughter of half a million communists. Um, those are unworthy victims and not worth sort of talking about. Um, I, think, I think the same can be true on the left. 
at times. For example, the, the case of these, um, you know, refugees from Vietnam where, you know, the, the documentary shows the, this funny sort of tete-a-tete that happened between Joan Baez and Jane Fonda, where Joan Baez was very concerned with the plight of these refugees, but Jane Fonda refused to uh, sign a petition um, calling to, for support and aid for, for um, these people. And I've done a little bit of reading about in the literature at the time, and, and there was this sort of reluctance to, to acknowledge the needs of these people. So, so when you say, as you say, like, you know, you know sometimes the, the so-called bourgeoisie can be victims as well. We think about, you know, Jewish families from, from Europe um, in the 30s and 40s. So it's far too simplistic to, to make one's, you know, sort of moral alignments um, along the lines of, uh, uh, simply of class in that in that way. Um, so, so one of my gestures in the book is to say that politics itself equals asylum. And what that does is to give me a sort of what Edward Said might call a contrapuntal perspective, like seeing things from, from two different places at once where one can view politics, whether it's uh, from capitalist states or ostensibly socialist states from the lens of asylum and make judgments on that basis, rather than simply um, filtering one's judgments through a, a pre-existing sort of liberal or, or socialist lens. There's actually the uh, asylum forming the basis of politics itself gives one a means of adjudicating these things. So regardless of, of who the sort of people are who are, you know, fighting for their, you know, right to belong or who require assistance and so on, that we can then make, um, you know, some form some judgments, um, regardless of, you know, what type of society we're dealing with. And Does that also, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And also, um, using Miami as an example, since that's my home, <laughs> um, you know, what happened in, in Florida and Miami is that, you know, if, if a person fleeing Cuba because of po American politics and, the, and their point of view and imperialistic stance, um, if a person fleeing Cuba arrives on the shores, like even really outside of Florida and doesn't make touch, touch the land, they could still be rescued and brought in and, and, you know, stay in the United States. But if a person from Haiti, even if they make land, I have friends from Haiti that family had been there and that my friends had been there for 20 years and they were still terrified of being sent back because there was like no way for them to be able to seek asylum or be able to stay because they're just like systematically just always sent back, always sent back. And that's obviously a very huge racial line as well that's happening, like Cuban people are allowed to stay and Haitian people have to go back. And it's horrible. Absolutely, yeah, I understand they're trying to deport people who are already in the United States now who yeah, who, are, who aren't even simply recent arrivals. They're trying to kick people out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had friends in Haiti. I dated a guy from Haiti when I was like 22. And he was, he, he was born in the States and grew up in there, but he was always terrified of being, of being sent back because it had happened to people in his family. And, the, and you know, talk about the political system there and the dictators and horrible things he used to tell me about, about military people coming into the houses and like saying like, I'm going to shoot you to the father or the brother, like rape your sister, rape your daughter. I mean, like really, really horrible abuse. Right. Terrific. Again, a lot of those dictators were backed up by the United States. Um, so again, there's sort of imperial fingerprints on a lot of that. And yeah, I mean, I'm more and more fascinated by the history of Haiti in terms of, you know, obviously the first successful slave revolt, um, 
and and the way it's been punished by you know uh, the global north by Western powers ever since uh, up until this day. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 backing of dictators and just the just the horrendous suffering of people there. Again, that that's a conversation that requires nuance where one recognizes the the issues uh, within the society, and they're also um, you know, very um, complex differences between groups of Haitians. Um, I was actually just listening to a podcast on this. There's a podcast called This Is Revolution, which uh, actually has a, a, a gentleman from, from Haiti who, who gives a really excellent breakdown of issues that are going on there. So I recommend that to people if, if they're interested in, in finding out more about Haiti. Um, this Is Revolution podcast. I will link to that. Yeah, and the other thing that... that um... I saw lately, because of course, Greta Thunberg is the national treasure here, <laughs> uh, world treasure, international treasure, hopefully. But anyway, she, she recently said that, um, uh, you know, she pointed out that, um, you know, we act like all of these things are impossible. It's too much. It's too hard to deal with climate change to deal with all these issues. But what coronavirus showed was that actually we did shut everything down. Like we shut everything down pretty globally, like pretty well to deal with the pandemic um, enough, you know, and hopefully we'll still continue to do that. Um, <laughs> even though America's decided the pandemic's over, but whatever. Um, the United States of America, not all of America. Um, but um, yeah, so she, she pointed out that we actually do have the ability to kind of shut things down and do things differently if we're really faced with a crisis like the coronavirus. And that, you know, if we actually treated the environment, for example, as a crisis that it is, that we could actually make big changes to deal with it, but we're but we're sadly everyone seems to be going oh great let's go back to how it was before Corona instead of actually being like remember the beginning when all the cars had stopped and people were like look the smog is clearing and we could see the mountains and the animals like does everyone remember that and like why don't we do things to like help the earth and help ourselves and help each other. Um. <laughs> It comes back to that problem we were sort of discussing at the beginning of how we can get people's minds to change. And that requires this rethinking of politics at a more fundamental level uh, in terms of, yeah, exactly as you say, that re re requires a sort of a sort of mobilization on the order of like the Second World War where the whole society and international community is geared towards this, this sort of shared uh, goal that's an existential goal that's actually about our basic um, survival uh, and flourishing on the earth so yeah i don't know if you saw that great photo um it was going around on on twitter there was a bmw that had fu greta written on it and it was underwater in the flood oh wow it was an incredible incredibly uh wonderful you know poetic justice yeah exactly that's your point um yeah no and it's it's so depressing to see like the amount of vitriol that's been like thrown at her and you know, it's like, it's amazing that adults can act that way towards anyone, including a, a teenager, you know, a young person. It's uh, mind boggling. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about that you didn't get to get to? I think we've covered quite a lot. It's um, been nice chatting. I guess I should mention that people could get my book as an ebook at the moment if they want. Yes. <laughs> it's available as a hardcover. Yeah, that's a little on the expensive side. That's sort of university libraries um, type thing. But I'm glad I'm glad you've got a copy. But yeah, if people want to get it now, they should, could probably get an ebook. It's a bit more affordable. 
And also there's going to be a paperback a little bit further down the line in, in a few months. Oh, cool. And we will link to all of that. Is there anywhere that people can find you if they want to follow your work? Um, I have an academia.edu page where people can find my academic work. Uh, and I'm on Twitter, but I don't use Twitter all that much. Um, you can find me. It's, it's uh, Nathan underscore Bell 1010. Um, yeah, so if people want to uh, uh, follow me there, they can. Okay, so I will link to all of these things. So thank you so much for being here and for doing this important work and having these difficult conversations and looking at everything in such a nuanced and thoughtful way. Thank you for having me, Vanessa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Nathan Bell, professor at the University of Melbourne. His book, Refugees Towards a Politics of Responsibility, is available as a book and ebook from Roman and Littlefield. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from Trapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and sign up for my newsletter on the contact page to stay abreast of all upcoming events. You can also visit the Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org, and follow me at Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Thank you so much for listening to Rendering Unconscious Podcast and for your support. You can support the podcast at our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Your support is so appreciated. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon patrons.
You woke up in a disgruntled mood. Creation to occur. It is the space as delayed. So you're feeling a bit out of sorts. Experimentation. Rituals create or are daydreaming of sexual fantasies. Encourages mastery through re the scene. Remain the same. There are countless. They require less. These differences that a cut is made, it is in. You begin to pay attention and take notice of a lot of women. Well, one could say that all of life is a cut up. How the female body is sacred, a fine core, and one reach, a longer reach. One can see this more of my own, of such spaces across cultures and spiritual. Don't need to make the burning of resins or herbs, the quality creativity that way. The first rays of morning, the last of, and I will choose to, humming, movement, and ecstatic dance are to point things out. Why so many different? Now let's return to the idea of the fragment.